Good morning. The scripture passage this morning is John 5, verses 1 through 15. If you'd like to turn there with me, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you, and it can be found on page 1621. John 5, verses 1 through 15. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who, had healed, who had, was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and was not there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Good morning, High Point. Merry Christmas. Um, my name is Molly Hansen, and uh, I've been asked to share my testimony about what God has done for me. So I'm going to do that. Uh, I've struggled with chronic low back pain for many years, and some days are better than others, but it has just become a part of my everyday life. Until August of this year, when I began to have a tingling nerve pain in my leg, Long story short, I waited until October when I ended up in the emergency room in the middle of the night from the intense pain. My doctor ordered an MRI that showed a stenosis of my spine with two herniations at L4 and L5. And L5 was ruptured and protruding bilaterally and sitting on my sciatic nerve. I was put on several prescriptions for pain management and scheduled an appointment with the neurosurgeon for the end of November. During this appointment, my doctor explained that because of the amount of trauma that had happened in my spine, my only option for complete recovery was surgery. I was also informed that because of my disc at L5 protruding so much that my surgery would count as two out of the three before a total fusion would have to take place. So we scheduled surgery for December 15th. In October, my best friend, Abby Bernard, and I were talking, and she was telling me about the church that her brother has been pastoring at in Naperville, Illinois, and how the head pastor has been functioning in the spiritual gift of healing. 
She began to recount truly incredible stories to me, but I shot her down almost immediately when she asked if I would perhaps be interested in driving down and having him pray over my back. I used excuses like how it's incredibly painful for me to travel long distances, which is true, so she dropped it. She didn't hassle me about it at all. But God would not leave me alone. I was always wondering, what if, and am I not having enough faith? Until two weeks ago, I felt what I can only describe is at the very core of my being crying out, why can you not just trust me? Watch what I will do for you. I knew this was the Holy Spirit. Until I finally repented for my lack of faith, and I said to Abby, let's go. So four days before my surgery, and true to my character, I waited until the last minute to do everything, including listening to God. We drove down and attended Truth Lutheran Church in Naperville. And afterwards, Abby, her brother, and Pastor Wong prayed for me. He had me sit down, and he asked where the pain was. Then he anointed me with oil, confirmed I was a follower of Christ, and just laid his hands over my back. I have never encountered anything like this before. But as he was praying, only my lower back and my left leg, where all of the nerve damage was, began to tremble. Sort of like when you are extremely cold and you begin to shiver, but times a thousand. <laughs> it was completely uncontrollable on my part, and I only feel like I'm doing the description justice when I say that it felt supernatural. I felt the Holy Spirit move so strongly upon me while he was praying that I just began to weep. Once they stopped praying, he asked me to stand up. Now, even moments after experiencing what I know was the hand of God on my body, I still doubted. I explained to him that I haven't been able to stand instantly from a sitting position in three months, that everything just begins to kind of lock up and ache, and it takes a lot of effort. But in that next moment, I stood with ease and instantly. Most of the numbness and the tingling that had caused me to limp for so long was just gone. I walked across the room, and then I ran, and then I jumped, and I... <laughs> the very last thing that the pastor said to me before we left, and I do believe that the Holy Spirit led him to say this, or he would not have said it, was, this pain is going to try to come back. When it does that, I want you to take your hand and lay it over whatever part of your body hurts and rebuke it in the name of Jesus. So, these last two weeks, I have been having what I can best describe as twinges or winces of pain in the old places where the pain used to be all the time and so much worse. So, I obey and I place my hand over where it hurts and I rebuke it. And here is what blows my natural mind. It works. <laughs> the pain literally subsides as I pray Jesus over it. This happened two weeks ago today. 
and the twinges have been showing up a little less and a little less every day. After communicating with my physician's assistant and the neurosurgeon, frantically, as you can imagine, <laughs> um, they decided to cancel my surgery. I was disappointed that they couldn't order another MRI for a lack of symptoms because insurance wouldn't pay for what they deemed to be an unnecessary test. And there are no other tests that disc material in your back shows up on. But they also don't want to operate on people that don't have symptoms. <laughs> so I continue to trust God in that as well. I have been operating at or around a level five or six of pain on my medications for the last three months, and in an instant it was just gone. I can feel it in my own physical body, so by his grace I have realized I don't need to see something to believe it. And I will continue to proclaim his faithfulness and his good deeds towards me. So I have had a greater revelation of Romans 8, 6 through 7 lately, so I'm just gonna leave you with that this morning. To set the mind on things of the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Everybody, Merry Christmas. You might be thinking to yourselves, um, why preach out of the guy that gets healed by the pool at Bethesda on Christmas out of John 5, right? Aren't we supposed to be doing an infancy narrative out of Matthew or, um, or Luke? And I, we, we plan to do this passage um, long before I heard anything about what happened to Molly. And um, one of the questions I think we can ask ourselves is, um, <clears throat> which biblical event is more about healing? Is it, I mean, is it the paralytic in Bethesda or is it the baby in the cave, right? I mean, Christmas is a story about healing. I mean, that it is the story about healing, right? The third verse of Joy to the World is, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. And you sing that last part three times. And the curse is, the curse is everything. I mean, that's, it's everything wrong with all of creation. And he has come to bring healing to that, right? And every, every credible story of healing that I hear builds my faith. I can think of at least five in high point since I've come here over the last seven years. I remember Kathy Muselar um, coming to a healing conference that we had here that wasn't associated with our church. And she went into a meeting and the, the person was speaking about healing, but he was speaking about forgiveness. And he said, listen, you're, 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 you're kicking yourself if you think that healing can come to a heart that will not forgive. And she was like, shoot, there's stuff I need to forgive. And she had been debilitated with migraine headaches for years. It's the reason they hadn't adopted a child. And um, she came, and so she just repented of unforgiveness. And then she was healed of her migraines. 
And then she adopted a child from Africa because she needed headaches in her life, right? And so <laughs> I, remember, I remember a few years ago, the Kutzinger's walking out of the sanctuary holding their not quite, I think, two-year-old daughter Rachel at the time saying that doctors in Milwaukee were going to have to like cut open her skull because her skull wasn't growing in size as fast as her brain and it was going to, well, it was going to probably kill her if they didn't operate and I remember praying for them, like right, standing right at those doors and lots of other people in the church praying for them as well and then them going for their pre-surgery appointment and them looking at her again and them saying, she's fine. And I remember, I remember Becca, the, the young woman who read the scripture. And she had to have one of her ovaries removed and then she started getting pain on the other side and they were preparing to have to remove that too. And she's, you know, she's 24, I think, at the time. And Somebody prayed for her, and then she didn't have pain anymore, and there was no surgery. And, and then Molly, right? And um, it's just—it's funny. There's a UW professor that his latest book is like how there's no such thing as credible miracles. And I, and I understand that, that frame of mind. Like, I understand that. I understand that they're incredibly difficult things to believe, and if they don't happen to you, like, I get that, Right? But what I, what I also experience with, with what it does to my faith is also the questions that always accompany those in a normal human mind, which is like, I was in bed sick this whole week, <laughs> right? I, there are people very close to me in my life who I've pray, prayed for many times who have chronic disabilities or chronic pain who are not healed, Right? And, and I, lots of people feel that way, right? And I've had, I've had a number of skeptics say to me before, look, I'm ready to believe in Jesus today. Just, if Jesus would just send somebody down, you know, send somebody down to the children's hospital, you know, and clear that thing out, I'll get baptized this afternoon, right? And like, like I get that logic. I think it's a little childish, especially for the intellectual people that say it to me. But, but I understand that idea that like, why wouldn't God just do it big, right? And it's funny that the verse is right before John 5 starts. This is exactly what Jesus says when he's in Galilee and people are coming to him and they'd heard earlier he had done miracles and they're like, do more miracles, Jesus. And it says, then a royal official heard that Jesus was in Galilee from Judea, and he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. Then the royal official said, sir, just come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, you can go, your son will live. And then he leaves and he runs into people who are coming from his house. And he says, your son is better. And then he believes. Right? And in John 14, Jesus ends up saying to Thomas, he says, you guys have believed because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. Not because they're better, but there's, there's something about Jesus where he, he just didn't trust the faith of people who believed because they saw. He, he doesn't—it's it's really interesting that Jesus, on one side— 
does miracles to demonstrate that he is the coming Messiah. Because the Bible said that when the Messiah would come, the lame would walk, and the blind would see, and the deaf would hear, and the poor would hear the good news. And he says that in Luke 4, he goes, John the Baptist, or no, that's a different thing. But he, he reads that passage out of Isaiah, and he goes, today this is all filled, fulfilled in front of you. Right? He's saying, you're going to see these things happen, and you're going to know that I'm the Messiah. And then he says, listen, it drives me nuts, you guys that you will only believe if you see miracles. Right? Think about that. That Jesus came into the world as the Messiah to wrought the miraculous of healing upon us. And he is annoyed openly (laughs) that we are the sorts of creatures that will only believe when we see. And yet, one of the things that Jesus demonstrates in his, in his miracles, that just the miracle of himself, of him coming into the world to be the Savior at Christmas, or any healing that he brings about, he demonstrates by how he does it, how we make sense of all of that. All of our questions, why doesn't he clear out the hospital? Why doesn't he? And, and his, his own apparent frustration with that he comes to bring healing. And yet he's so frustrated that if we don't see it, we, don't, we won't believe. And yet he's come, John says in John 20 and in John 1, that he comes so that we might believe. And through that belief, experience life. And so, I think if we look closely at this passage, and this is what I'm going to argue for the next few minutes here, is that the healing Jesus is actually offering is better than the healing that we want. Okay, the, the, the healing of Jesus is offering in his healings to every person, right? Every person. There's a healing that every person can receive. Not just some who are healed, but every person. And that healing, the healing that every person can receive, is better than the healing we want or that some receive. So, first I want to look at a couple things that what Jesus does shows us are not true about how he behaves. And these things should affect our questions really deeply. And the the first is, is that And these three things correlate with how most of us believe we would act if we were in Jesus' position, that we were God and we were trying to redeem the world, right? And Jesus doesn't do what we would do, right? And the first is is that he doesn't seem to care about his reputation, even in how he utilizes the miraculous, right? So this tells us—so there's this this pool, right? It's just north of the temple. A lot of worshipers would come in that way. That's where a lot of the sacrificial lambs would come in. And so there's this pool at Bethesda. And so you could get water for these sheep that would go up to be slaughtered, right? But it also had these colonnades covering it. So there were religious people coming in who might be in a generous mood. There was water that was easily accessible. There was abundant shade, right? And there was either a true story or a superstition— that at certain times, an angel would come down from the Lord and stir the pool, 
And when that happened, and you saw the water shake, the first person to touch it would be healed of whatever was wrong with them. Right? And if you read commentators, some think that it was just a blind superstition. Some, like John Calvin, thought that it was like a real thing that united the time of Malachi to the time of the Savior, and that, like, it was a real way God healed people. Right? And it says that there was a great multitude of disabled people around this pool. So it was either a very powerful superstition, or it was something that actually happened sometimes. Okay? And so it says that there was a multitude of sick people. And it says that Jesus walked up to this multitude of sick people and walked up to a guy that wasn't even paying attention to him. And he goes to—he says to this guy, what would generally be thought of as an insensitive question. Do you even want to get better? Do you want to get better? Do you want to be healed? Right? And the guy tries to explain to Jesus that the ailment that he suffers from makes it so he can't get healed, right? Because, like, a guy who's deaf can get in the water a lot faster than the guy who's paralyzed, right? And so, and he's been that way for a long time. And so he's like, don't you see, what you have to do to get healed is to get in the pool first, and the kind of ailment I have makes it so I can't ever get in the pool first, and it turns out people suffering horrifically under painful diseases don't take turns, So here I am, right? And so he heals him. He says, get up and take your mat and walk. And then he's gone. Like, he just slips away into the crowd. And the the, the guy who gets healed doesn't even know who healed him. So Jesus doesn't get any of of the talk time or the reputation from it. But he tells the guy to pick up his mat right next to the temple where there's sure to be a lot of persnickety religious people. And he tells him to pick up his mat mat on the Sabbath day and walk right in front of him to get everybody mad at him. So he gets all the character attack and none of the praise. That's not how you would do it. Okay? That isn't how you would do it. Secondly, you believe that if you were him, you would have just walked up there and be like, be healed, the whole lot of you. That's what you would do. And you would either do it because you want everybody to think you're fantastic, or you would do it because you think that's just the merciful thing to do. You, you just heal the people. They're in pain, for God's sakes. Like, have you ever been around somebody in chronic pain? It's horrible. You just—you—you—you you, like pull—you would pull ribs out of your body by hand if that would help them. Like, it's—and there were—there was a multitude of them. And Jesus walks up to one of them who clearly is not the brightest one of them, right? Or most religious or devout or anything. And he's like, hey, you, you want to be healed? And the guy's like, well, I don't see how that works. And he goes, okay, yeah, stand up and walk. And then he just leaves. One guy. And not the nicest guy. He could have at least said, look, I'm going to heal one person. Let's get some character references and line up and we'll figure out who we're going to do today. I mean, it's not how it goes. He just heals this guy. And he doesn't do it in a way that's strategic at all in a worldly sense. Like, we would be like, look, if I want the whole world to trust God, I'm going to go and I'm going to heal like the kids of like royal officials and kings and stuff like that, or like religious teachers. I'm going to be a little strategic about how I do this so we can move this in the right direction. You start reading through John's gospel and the people he, he does miracles for. 
a completely obscure, apparently relatively poor couple who runs out of alcohol at their wedding. Right? He turns five enormous pitchers of water, like more wine than a small army would need, into wine. Okay? He's just like, you know, let's make some wine. Let's we'll start out with making wine because I'm here to bring happiness as far as the curse is found, right? And then, right? And then he intentionally bumps into this woman who's had five husbands and is sleeping with her boyfriend, right? And like, explains to her that he's the Messiah prophetically, right? And she's like, whoa! And then this, this royal magistrate, who, if he's a royal magistrate, he's probably not even a Jew, right? So he's part of the like Gentile overlords or whatever, right? And this guy, hey, your son's going to be fine. And then he walks into a great multiple, picks out one guy, and that's it. Like, what the? What are you trying, what are you trying to do? It's like, it's trying to be as obscure as possible. The, the big, let's get, let's get all the nobodies together, right? And yet, the woman at the Samaritan well starts a revival in her town. Lots of people come to Jesus through her, right? Jesus gets people wanting to kill him over this guy. That's an achievement, right? The fact that in all, all the main ways we would use this power, if we had it, Jesus does it differently. That is, that is an answer screaming at our doubts. Our doubts are like, why doesn't he clear our hospitals? Why doesn't he heal, heal me? Why doesn't he do this for that? Why doesn't he blah, blah, blah? And w- when he walks into a room and heals one person out of a multitude, that should get you thinking that this is not the main healing he's bringing. Right? These healings are signs that he's the Messiah who brings healing to all people. But it's not that kind. Signs of that kind of healing, the only kind we'll listen to. If you people don't see miraculous signs, you'll never believe. Signs of that kind of healing. First fruits pop up everywhere, right? And yet he is bringing a different kind of healing those point to. Signs point to something else. That's what a sign is, right? And these ways in which Jesus acts very differently than us ought to to teach us something about what signs are and what they're for, and even why they persist. Right? And so, when we look at how Jesus does these miracles, we, have, we either have to accuse him of wrong, wrongdoing, or that he's doing something we don't naturally accept. And the thing that he is claiming he's doing that we don't naturally accept is that he is offering a better healing than healing. Now, what is a better healing than being freed from 38 years of paralysis? Like, like what's better than that? Right? There's two things I want you to see in this healing that's true of all Jesus' healings. And the first is, is that we're supposed to see in these healings that he does for some in the healing what is his heart for all in healing, okay? There's, um, there's, this, there's this pastor in the South named Annie Stanley who uses a principle called symbolic leadership. It's in his leadership docs. He says, he says, listen, when you're a leader of a large group of people, you can't 
be utterly personable and do everything you would like to do for every person, right? You can't visit everybody in the hospital, and you can't disciple everybody personally, and you can't know everybody deeply. You just—that's not possible when there's more than, like, 12 people, right? And so— but what, what you could do is say, well, I'm just going to make it fair for everybody, and I'm not going to get to know anyone, and I'm not going to visit anybody, and I'm not going to disciple anyone, because if I do, it'll be like favoritism, right? And he's like, that's a terrible way to live, right? The first thing you should teach your kids is that life isn't fair, right? Fair is a horrible thing in many cases. But he said, what you do is you do for some what you wish you could do for everyone, And in doing for some what you wish you could do for everyone, they benefit from it. You live a real human life, and everybody else can see what you're like. And if you could be multiplied a thousand times, they would believe you would do that for them. But you just, you have to make some choices, right? And so there's a a way in which God shows symbolic mercy, Right? He, he does for some physically so that we can all see what he has come to do for everyone spiritually. The, the greater healing that we require. And so in doing so, he demonstrates that he's merciful, that he's compassionate. And partly also so that we'll see a symbolic choice because— We're not supposed to say, oh, he healed that guy and not me. What we're supposed to see is that you are that guy. Okay? That guy by the pool who was a paralytic for 38 years, that's me. Do you understand? That's you. You think your ailments are your greatest ailments. I think my infirmities are my greatest infirmities. I think that because I've gotten chronic sinus infections for 25 years, that's my greatest infirmity. You know why I think that? Because I'm a human being. And human beings are stupid spiritually. Just stupid. Right? And so I, so I go through my day thinking like, this is the greatest infirmity I have. It's not the greatest infirmity I have. I'm, I have a despicable heart. That's the greatest infirmity that I have. Do you understand? That's, and that's your greatest infirmity too. Your heart of darkness. And it'll take, a, it'll take a miracle to heal that thing. A miracle. Listen to me. Godliness is not an achievement. It's a miracle. Amen. Holiness, the transformation of life to look like Christ, that's not, a, that's not an accomplishment. It's a miracle. Do you understand? It's far more of a miracle than healing somebody who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Do you understand? And it's far more of a miracle, and it's far more of a salvation than being freed from chronic pain. You are that paralytic, and I am the paralytic man with my stupid answers. And my giving Jesus away as soon as he's done anything for me. And him having to rebuke me right after he heals me because I want to use my health to feed my sin. Do you notice what Jesus says to this guy? He's like, he's like, listen, you're better. God, stop sitting or something worse is going to happen to you. And a lot of commentators say that's a reference to final judgment. And it is, 
But it's not just a message to final judgment because he says it in a kind of a strange way. He doesn't say, he says like, basically, like, stop sinning right now. <laughs> because what it seems like has happened is that his original paralysis was actually the result of his sin. Now, in John 9, there's going to be a man that's born blind, and the disciples are going to be like, well, who sinned? This guy or his parents that he's born blind? And Jesus is going to say, nobody sinned that he was born blind. So Jesus does not say at any point that all of our infirmities are from our sin, but this guy's was. And then Jesus heals him, and then a short time passes, and then he's in the temple. So he's at church, and Jesus comes up to him and doesn't go, hey, you're at church, that's great. He goes, hey, stop sinning. Which seems to mean, if we're careful about the, the verb, mood, and tense there, that whatever sin got him paralyzed in the first place, he has done again between when he was healed and when Jesus runs into him at church. Okay? That's you. That's you. That's me. Okay? That's what we're like. Do you understand? And Jesus— is showing that he cares about you and your deepest and most real and most potentially damning and most enslaving infirmity. Your deepest sickness. And he cares about you. And he cares about you as much as he cared about that guy. And every person who he showed his symbolic mercy to, he showed it in a way so that you would think it could be you. Because listen, you could be that poor couple who couldn't afford any more wine. If he had healed some king's son, you'd be like, well, he's a king's son. I guess he's important. But he didn't. He showed up as like some, a couple of poor kids getting married who ran out of wine. He's like, have some more wine. And he, he, he bumps into this woman who's on like semi-husband number six. And he's like, I could give you living water. Right? And this official comes up. He's like, heal my son. He's like, you guys. Oh, it's like you won't believe what's true and good and beautiful. All you want is just for me to make it better. And then he goes, and okay, so I'll make it better. Go, and your son's better. Right? And here, mister, I don't deserve it, and I'm not that bright. And I've been there for a long time. Right? Nick, I'm not good. So what? He wasn't good? Right? Nick, I'm not theological. He was not theological, right? Nick, I've been living this way for a long time. 38 years. First thing he does, he goes and does it again. Nick, I fall back. I backslide. I can't. I just, I'm not good enough. Even believing I'm not good enough. He went, like, he went and did it right after he was healed. That's pretty bad, right? And Jesus chose him. Do you understand? He chose that guy. Because that guy is not impressive. <laughs> because he's a, you're supposed to see your common humanity in him. Do you understand? You're supposed to see that that's you. And that your greatest infirmity is not your greatest sickness. And Jesus offers healing to that infirmity of heart to everyone and not just forgiveness. Listen, not just forgiveness. He offers the healing of godliness and of holiness, of transformation, of change. So that when we believe on the name of the Son of God, John 1, and we receive the new birth, John 3, that the result is that we, we sin no more. 
That doesn't mean we don't ever sin. Like Jesus told us to pray every day, basically, God, forgive my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. But that there is a There is a sinning no more that happens in the heart. There is a change of focus to his kingdom and his righteousness. There is a desire to do the good and to love the good. And to want to be like the Christ who saved and healed you. And that changes, right? And that's healing. Right? You could— You can think of it this way, that Jesus came to show a little bit of the kind of healing he will bring ultimately. Because he does promise as the Messiah to return and ultimately put away all infirmity, sickness, and death. He'll put it all away, right? But he comes to bring a healing that is better and that is first. Right? I've said something about how it's better, but it's also first. Think about it this way. If I said, listen— you can have one of two potential utopias, greatest possible worlds, right? And you get to pick your God, okay? So your God, I'm going to give you two options. You get to pick one of them. And I know you're like, oh, if I was God, I could use a third option. And let's just go with me and the counterfactual, okay? So one is that you live in a world in which we have a cure for every disease and we can achieve climate stability, okay? And tectonic stability. So there aren't natural disasters and there isn't disease, But the human heart is morally and spiritually as it is right now, and there's no cure for it. Okay? Or you can have world number two, in which we have approximately the same amount of disease and tectonic and climate instability, and every heart is morally and spiritually angelic. Okay? There's no sin in the heart of human beings. You understand? Which world do you want? See, for me, there's no question— No question. I want world number two. Right? And if you want world number one, then in order to understand Jesus, you'll first have to understand humans. Because I think that means you have a, a shallow sense of human beings and how they treat each other and live with each other and where our attitudes come from. And Because, listen, you know— if, if you read the Bible, the first scenario, we actually tried that one with good humans. And this is what we got. You understand? In order to renew creation, those that have been created to be creation's steward have to be healed first. Right? They have to be healed first. And then you can heal creation. If creation stewards are ravenous dictators and tyrants, and you fix the creation they steward, you haven't gotten anywhere. You haven't done anything good. Right? And so Jesus comes first to change, heal, and invite all his image bearers that won't be recreated. Right? We are what we are. We're eternal. We're everlasting creatures. We bear God's image. We're either saved or damned. We don't get remade. We get rebodied, but we don't get remade. You have to you have to heal that first, so that you can heal all. And so Jesus comes first, and he shows some of the final healing, but it's a sign of the healing that he offers, which is to the heart of human beings, what he calls in John three the new birth. 
a spiritual regeneration of the human heart, an an ingiving of the Spirit of God himself, and an entire reorientation towards the beauty of the good that is found in God, that is shown to us in Christ. Does that make sense? And then he comes to eradicate the curse as far as it is found. Um, this last week, I got two letters, not just Molly's. I got another letter. Um, some of you remember that uh, um, Vince and I did like a shared sermon. I did like seven-eighths of it, and he did one-eighth. And um, in his part, he talked about having a come-to-Jesus confession session. I don't know if you remember this, where he's like, look— if you want to be free of the secret things that like just have a hold of you, right? You just you need to you need to trust God's people. You need to conf- you need to let it out in the open. You need to confess your sins to each other so that you can be healed. Is literally what it says in the Bible, and a lot of people did that. Um, there's there's one one person that had one of these secret secret, secret sins that had been hidden away for a long time. He's a very respectable person. So, he, he, you know, you kind of assume it on everybody. He's not really one of the people you'd normally assume it on. And he was like, oh, boy. And so he told his wife, who he had never told. And then right after that, he told his whole small group. And he was its leader. Right? And um, that was a few weeks ago. That was like right after Vince did that, which is three four weeks ago. I'm not sure now. And this week, I got a letter from his wife, which, is, which said basically— I didn't want this. <laughs> this has not been fun. This is one of those painful things we've ever been through. But I can see that God is healing him and changing him and healing us. And I didn't really lose my picture of him as a good man. I've always thought much of him. And to see him face this thing and to know that this was tearing him in two for all those years, to know that it could come out into the open and that we could work together and I could be his ally and that we could move forward and that people could watch us. You see, Jesus thinks that that is the greater healing. Do you understand me? I'm not being sentimental at all. And I know some people, if you're skeptical of mind, you'll, you'll think in your mind, you'll be like, you'll be like, oh, that's so— that's so, like, typical of religion. Just kind of like, you spiritualize this stuff so you don't have to put up or shut up on the miracles. Like, I, Listen, I get that. Jesus does not agree with you. Jesus believes that godliness is a miracle. Do you understand? He believes it is the greatest healing. He believes that healing leaves people worse off if it turns them away for the transformation, the healing of the new birth that they have to experience. That's what he believes, because he could have healed more people at that pool, but he didn't. He healed that guy, and then he tracked him down later, and he said, hey, you need to quit sinning because it's going to kill you. Something worse is going to happen to you. And to him, that was better than healing two people in their bodies. It was better Because he's trying to show us it makes no difference if you get physically healed. It makes no difference. You're actually worse off in the end because you've received the grace of a miracle. 
And if you receive the grace of a miracle, and that grace of that miracle doesn't turn you to your divinely created purpose, and doesn't turn you to your divine creator, and therefore doesn't turn you to repentance, and turn you to receive the new birth, then you have not only done every sin, but you have spurned the most beautiful opportunity and grace that could possibly be given to a human being. And so your deserved condemnation is multiplied. And he realizes that. And it may be why there are fewer miracles than we would like. It might be a mercy that there aren't more mur- miracles. Miracles. <laughs> your greatest infirmity is not your sickness. My sinus infections, Mike's chronic back pain, your fibromyalgia. Whatever. Listen, your greatest ailment is not your pain. It's not your pain. And I don't say that flippantly. Your greatest infirmity is your heart. And Jesus has come in his first coming, not his second coming, in his first coming. And he's offered universal human healing to all who would believe. And it's not something you have to like jimmy up and like get better. It's not. It's a healing. It's like being paralyzed for 38 years. And you can't get in the pool and it's not going to work. And that whole way of getting healed is probably a superstition anyway. And Jesus shows up and says, do you want to be healed? And if the answer is yes, even if it's like a pathetic jumble like this guy, but the answer is yes, then he offers the new birth. Believe in the Son of God and you become a child of God. Forgiven, reoriented, regenerated, spirit indwelt, guided, put into a new family, and sealed for eternity. And he doesn't just give you forgiveness. He will give you progressively the gift of godliness, which is a miracle and is a healing. Christmas is about a miracle. It is about a healing. It is about a healing for all mankind. But it is a miracle. Like Jesus came to that one guy, it is a miracle for one person, you. Right? That's, think about, that's why he doesn't just heal the whole group. He goes to one person and treats that person like, like, all, like he's all of humanity. And he goes, do you want to get better? And, and in a way, God is God of all. In another way, he is for you. And he comes to you and he says to you, do you want to receive healing? And the answer is yes. If you're struggling with an answer, the answer is yes. And then he does the miracle of that healing when you believe. And your part is like standing up and picking up your mat when you're already healed. It's a really big problem, right? And he, all the rest he does if you believe. If you believe. And for, so for some of you, I hope you'll believe for the first time. I hope you believe right now. And it may accompany physical healing. I don't know. God dispenses that how he pleases. We pray for people to be healed. And God dispenses it as he pleases to point to the greater healing of the gospel of salvation for all of us.
Okay? And for some of you, you need to stop languishing and fearing. The godliness that God wants to give you is a miracle. It is a healing. It comes to you freely. And you just need to keep opening yourself up. You repent and believe. You just repent and believe. You're a bad person. I know you're a bad person. Repent and believe. I'm a bad person. I have to repent and believe because it's a healing that I receive. And then I become a more healed person. And I can walk in the ways Jesus asked me to walk. And I can, I can carry the mat of my past on my shoulder to show others, but it's not under me anymore. And that can be you this minute. So pray with me. Father, I pray that as we, as we consider this miracle on Christmas, I pray that you would banish the doubts that we have about why you don't heal differently, both in the Bible and in the present moment. I know so many people were struggling with chronic pain and disease and disabilities in themselves or their children. And I know, I know something about the weight of that. And I don't know as much as others, but I know something about the weight of that. I pray, Father, that the doubt that creeps into the mind, the doubt that possesses the place of faith inside of I pray that you banish that doubt. And that we would— those of us who have not received healing from whatever ailment it is, even if we've turned to you many times, I pray that you would show us that you have not made that symbol of us at this moment. But your goodness is undimmed by that. I pray that you would help us to cherish, even more than we would cherish the release from our infirmities and pain, I pray that you would teach us to cherish our salvation if we've come to you, or our, our salvation if we're willing to come to you now, that we would cherish that like a freedom from all our infirmities. I know that I do not cherish today, this morning, I know I don't cherish the healing you're doing in me through Christ like I would cherish it if I was healed of all the physical ailments I've been suffering under. I don't, and I, I know that that's wrong, and I don't know how to feel righter about it. Will you do the miracle of healing in me, in my feelings, and in my conscience, and in my convictions, and in my heart? Will you do it for all of us so that we would have the joy of the one who will destroy the curse and has wrenched it out of us in grace and generosity? And for those of us who don't believe, I pray, God, that you would do the miracle of persuasion and that you would do the miracle of building faith and that you would hear us as we turn to you. And I pray right now that if that's you, that you would just say in your heart or out loud, um, I want to be well, Jesus. And I put my trust in you to heal me and to save me and to make me yours. I pray that for those who have been a believer for some time, I pray that for whatever doubt or weight they bear, whatever demonic ghosts of their insufficiency haunt them, I pray that you would banish them with one word, and that you give salvation as a healing. And we receive it by repentance and faith every morning. That we say every day, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And that we receive renewed forgiveness and renewed healing and renewed resolve to live toward the beauty of your righteousness. Help us to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.